I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human source, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. That ends the reading. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. We are uh, continuing a series we started last week on Paul. And we're looking at different aspects of his life, his teachings, and kind of how he became, came and was the man who so vigorously was trying to persecute the church, to destroy the church, and became arguably the greatest builder of the early Christian church. In fact, the man who wrote over half of our New Testament. And so, last week we talked about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus and how on the way literally to arrest Christians, Jesus speaks to him. Knocks him off his horse, literally, blinds him. And Paul, we talked about kind of the key word last week was immediately, immediately, Paul obeys God. Immediately he goes and gets baptized. Immediately he begins preaching about Jesus. And we talked about how even though Paul was probably the most unlikely suspect to be used by God, God used him in amazing ways simply because he was willing. Right? He's the last guy that we would have suspected if we were, if we were predicting the story to be the person who almost single-handedly builds the Gentile church, right? Who shares the gospel all over the known world and starts churches everywhere. Who, who writes so much of the Bible that we study and learn from today. And so... As we look at this story, I want to talk about how, you know, even though conversion is this, this instant process, transformation in our lives takes time, right? How many of you set a New Year resolution related to a diet of some sort? Any kind? Chad's the only one that will raise his hand. I know more of you people did that. Chad also was willing to let me shoot a dart at him on stage one time, so... But yeah, we, maybe you said a, you said a, a, a New Year's resolution. Let's just say, this is not the case, but let's just say that I made a decision to become a vegetarian on New Year's Eve. I didn't. I don't think I would ever do that. Meat is too delicious, right? But 
But let's just say I made a decision so I could say I'm a vegetarian, right? And you would say, okay, he's converted to vegetarianism or whatever. But it would take a while for my body to actually change, right? I would have to eat only vegetables for a period of time before you would notice differences. And before I would become healthier, theoretically. I don't think it's ever been proven. (laughs) Maybe it has been. But anyways, besides the point, right? So transformation actually takes time. And so one of the interesting things about this passage of Scripture is, is, is here really quickly, and I'm going to read it again because I think it's so significant. And it's fascinating to me as well, right? Verse 17, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went to Jerusalem. Now, some of you may say, what's the big deal? Well, think about who Paul was, right? Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who, who bragged about the fact that he was taught by Gamaliel, who was the greatest of all the teachers in Israel, right? He, he was so into who he was taught by and his credentials and everything, and yet he gets this experience, he becomes a follower of the way of Jesus, And then he seeks no one. He doesn't seek people out to learn more. In fact, he says, I consulted no other humans. And it's three years before he even goes and meets the other leaders of the church, of this new movement of Christianity. And so, it's significant. We we, we know from scholars, we don't know a lot. In fact, we know almost nothing about this three-year period in the Bible. Very, very little. We have tiny little antidotes that we can get, you know, grab things from, but most scholars believe he went to the Nabetian culture. That was where he went in Arabia. The Nabetian culture was this one little uh, sort of tribe of somewhat nomadic people. They had built a lot of wealth, and they were actually outside of the influence of the Roman Empire, one of the only civilizations in this time that was. And they were just a little bit south of, of where he was in Damascus, um, in the desert, essentially. And so Paul goes, and, and it doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us that he was there for three years. In fact, it says he went there, and then he came back to Damascus, and then three years later he went to Jerusalem. So we don't know the, uh, the amount of time, but we know that certain things were going on. And so I want to take a moment, a few moments this morning, and talk about what was going on during this three-year period, and then what is the significance for you and I today? So... Number one, one of the things that Paul was doing during this period, he tells us, is he was learning. He wasn't learning from other teachers. He didn't go visit Peter. You know, the, the Peter or James were probably the established leaders of the early church. He didn't go to them, but it says he was being taught by the Holy Spirit. This is incredibly significant, and it's important in the context of Galatians, because as Paul writes this letter to the Galatian church, they, um, they have kind of gotten sidetracked. If we back up a little bit into earlier in chapter 1, in fact, he talks about how they have embraced a gospel that's not really a gospel at all. They've, they've taken this gospel of grace that they were, they were taught and they've perverted it. They, what they have done is they've, they've taken this, this new faith, this gospel of grace, and they've added stuff in. So they've, they've said to people, listen, 
it's okay if you're a follower of Jesus, but you also have to do this. And they kind of readopted some of their Jewish culture and traditions and said this was part of what it meant to be a Christian. And so Paul writes this letter to really say no. The only thing you need is Jesus. You don't need Jesus plus. You simply need Jesus. In fact, we can trace our, our own spiritual heritage largely to the book of Galatians. You may or may not know this. Galatians was uh, Martin Luther's favorite book. In fact, as he was preaching during the time of what we now call the Protestant Reformation, right? As he was preaching, he almost exclusively preached from the book of Galatians. He would preach over and over again from this book of Galatians to the church, trying to convince them that they didn't need Jesus plus. They simply needed Jesus. And so Paul is emphasizing that he didn't get this message, this gospel from anyone else. He's saying, I got this message from God himself. You've taken this message from God and you've added other stuff into it. And so this three-year period, one of the things Paul is doing is he's learning. He's learning. The Holy Spirit is teaching him. He's learning. And that's incredibly significant to us because where do we get the majority of our theology from? The New Testament of the Bible, right? Who writes most of this? If you haven't been paying attention, it was Paul. Yeah, Paul, and he gets his teaching not from some guy, not from Peter who made a bunch of stupid decisions, right? He gets his teaching from, he's saying, from the Holy Spirit himself. So that's incredibly significant. Also significant in here is that Paul's calling, right? We read here that Paul knew immediately that his calling was not what the rest of the church was doing. The rest of the church is um, focusing on Jews and trying to help them to understand that Jesus is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, And so they're not really, again, much like Martin Luther, they're not trying to start a new religion. They're just saying, listen, it's completed. The Messiah is here. You need to embrace him. And that's not what happened, but that's really what Peter and James and most of the early, the apostles are actually doing. But Paul gets a totally separate calling. He says, no, I'm called to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews of the world. And, you know, we are thankful for that, right? Because for most of us, there may be some Jewish believers in here, but for most of us, that is our heritage, right? Paul goes and he starts churches all over the known world. And that's how Christianity spreads. That's his calling. And so when Paul understands his calling immediately, he goes into the Nabetian culture, which is a Gentile culture, which would be the only really safe place for him to go outside of the scope of Rome. And so he goes there because that's where where he's called to. And also, let's just think about this for a minute. Also, his effectiveness. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 9. This one's not going to be on the screen, so you can either turn your Bible or just trust that I'm reading the truth. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Acts 9, and I'm going to read, starting in verse 26, if I can find it, here it is, yeah. This is, this is talking about Paul, and it says, when he came to Jerusalem, now this is when he first came after the three-year period, right? For three years, 
He's no longer persecuting the church for three years. He's learning. He's fulfilling his calling. He's in Arabia. He's in Damascus. And now this is when he first comes to Jerusalem. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. This is three years later, and they're still afraid. Can you imagine how ineffective it would have been if he had gone there immediately? If they're afraid after three years, what would they have done if he went there in a week? Right? And so then, but Barnabas takes him in and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas speaks on Saul's behalf, right? On Paul's behalf. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So even after three years, Paul finally goes to Jerusalem and he begins teaching like he's been doing for three years in Damascus and Arabia in the Nabitian culture. And Paul goes. And even after three years, the first time he tries to teach... They try to kill him. Can you imagine again if he had, if Paul had trust his own wisdom, I guarantee you he would have thought, listen, I need to go get the best teaching I can. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. But one of the things that Paul did is Paul, throughout his journey, he relies on God to direct him. There's multiple times as we read his story in Acts and in, in the epistles that he wrote where he says something along the lines of this, Right? In fact, the whole reason we have the book of Philippians is because Paul wanted to go one place, and as he wanted to go there, he said, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me. I wanted to go into Macedonia, but the Holy Spirit would not let me. And so I got on a boat, and I went this other direction, not even knowing where I was supposed to go. And when he got there, that's where the Philippian church comes from. Paul simply listening to God to direct him. And so as Paul takes this three-year hiatus, he goes in the last place anyone would expect, the Nabitian culture. And by all accounts, he's not very effective there. He really, at first, he goes and he preaches, and we have no record of, of any kind of converts or any church starting. It's not for a hundred years later that a, a real powerful, vibrant Christian church develops in the Nabitian culture. Now, probably, most likely, God used Paul's early work to make that happen. But for three years, as he's going back and forth between Damascus, by all accounts, he's not great at what he's doing. But he's learning. He's growing. He's relying on God to direct him. And the thing about effectiveness is, a lot of times we're far more effective when we allow God to use us than we ever New possible. Anyone remember the, uh, taking a risk here, I asked in the first service and no one knew it. Anyone remember the Ray Bolt song, Thank You? Julie, thank you. A couple of you do, right? Well, I'm not going to sing it for you. My own father. Wow. Wow. All right. But the song is about a guy, and he, he dies, and he gets to heaven. And, well, I don't think he actually dies. I think it says, dreamed I went to heaven. So, anyways, he's in heaven. 
And when he's in heaven, all of a sudden, one by one, people come to him. And they talk about the work he did that he never realized or imagined the impact he had on people's lives simply by obeying God and being faithful. And he never knew the impact he had had on so many different people simply by listening and obeying. There's a story in the book, Second Calling, that's like this. There's a woman by the name of Dale Bork, and she writes, years ago she attended a conference. When it was over, her friend Bruce offered her a ride to the airport. As they were about to leave, another man asked if he could join them. They drove away from the hotel. She and Bruce asked the man where he worked, and he mentioned a Christian organization. Bruce said, I have incredible memories of that group. He said, I attended a retreat of theirs one time, and that's where I became a Christian. It was in 1972 in New Hampshire. Bruce went on to explain that eventually his whole family came to Christ, and they all went into Christian work. His sister was a Wycliffe missionary, and Bruce himself became a publisher of a major Christian publishing house, which brought many significant Christian books to the public. Bruce finished the story with a flourish, saying that the retreat had had a worldwide impact when you think about it. The man was quiet. Dale and Bruce thought that maybe they were boring him. Then the stranger quietly said, I led that retreat. It was my first time as a conference leader, and I felt like a total failure. In fact, until this moment, I've always believed it was one of the biggest failures of my life. Dale Burke wrote, What had seemed like a simple act of offering a ride to a stranger had turned into a powerful reminder that God uses our efforts whether we realize it or not. I may spend the rest of my life doing things that don't seem to be successful, but only God knows the purpose. I'm simply called to be faithful. And so God uses Paul's efforts in the Nabitian culture, and he probably never even realized the impact he had. Probably never. In fact, I would guess that much like this conference leader, Paul kind of feels like that. maybe that was his greatest failure. This, this early three years that we have very little record of in the Bible and yet turned out to impact a whole culture for God. But Paul, Paul relies on God to direct him and Paul also needs God to prepare him. This, this three-year period is, is sort of Paul's preparation time for what God is calling him into. Paul's life and journey we know is incredibly difficult. Most of these books we have are written from a jail cell. Paul's imprisoned multiple times. He's, he's scheduled to be put to death several times. One time they try to kill him. Right? He's shipwrecked multiple times. He's bitten by poisonous snakes. He, his first ministry experience in Jerusalem, they try to kill him. I mean, he has it rough. He talks about a thorn in his flesh that God has given him. And he prays multiple times that God would take it away and God doesn't. So Paul needs this time. He needs this this period of three years to be prepared by God for what he's about to do. So all this, all this stuff about Paul is interesting and, and you know, hopefully we learn something new about him. But, but it's one thing to learn about Paul, but, but what does that mean for you and for me in our own lives? And I talked last week about how I, 
the, the main thing that, that set Paul apart was the fact that he was willing, right? He wasn't the guy that you'd choose, certainly. He was the greatest persecutor of the church. You wouldn't pick him to build it. And yet God does choose Paul, and God uses Paul. And so the question for us today is, what is God directing you toward, and what is he preparing you for? We know from Scripture that God has... Uh, specific things that he's equipped us to do. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that. We're his masterpiece. We're his work of art. Created for good works, specific good works that we're supposed to walk in, in life. And so what is that, what is that thing, that direction that, that God is, is, is pushing you towards, he's directing you to, and, and are you listening to it? And what is the thing that he is preparing you for? And then, what do you need to do to be ready to go? For for a lot of us, I think it's just a matter of saying yes. God has incredible things he wants to do in and through your life. He's directing you towards those things. He's preparing you for those things. He's given you the greatest gift he could give you, the Holy Spirit, literally living within you. And so are you willing to say yes? One of the things that, that I suspect holds, holds most of us up from, from doing great things for God and through God is that we don't think we're good enough. We have this idea that, w- that we're not the right person for the job. Even though this book tells us we are, we still doubt it, right? We think, we think we're not good enough. We think we don't have the right qualifications. We think God has not done a good enough job preparing us. Well, there was a church that was uh, on the hunt for a pastor. And so they put this out about some of, the, some of the people that had applied for the job. It's a satire. I think you'll catch on. There was this one guy who looked to be a good candidate. His name was Adam. He was a good man, but he was easily led astray by his wife. There was this guy, Noah. He had been a pastor for 120 years with zero converts. Plus, he had a problem with the bottle and a wayward son. There was this guy, Abraham. He was ridden with scandals. In fact, he offered his wife to another man suspected of child abuse. If you think about that one enough, you'll get it, I think. All right. There was this guy, Joseph, but he was a dreamer, plus he had a prison record. There was this guy, Moses, but he was a really poor communicator. He stuttered, and there was this murder charge looming in his background. There was this guy, David, but he had an affair with a neighbor's wife and, in fact, hired a hitman to kill him. There was a guy, Solomon. Um, he was... He was really smart, but he had way too many wives. I don't think they would have all fit in the parsonage. There was this guy, Elijah, but he was prone to depression and nervous breakdowns. Elisha, supposedly he lived with a single widow at his former church. Hosea looked sharp, but I don't think the congregation could handle his wife's job. Jeremiah, he was emotionally unstable and alarmist. Supposedly, he buried underwear on, under some foreign riverbank. Isaiah, he had language problems and claimed to see angels. 
Jonah, he won't even preach unless God forces him to. Amos, he's backward and unpolished. He doesn't like wealthy people. John calls himself a Baptist, but he doesn't dress like a Baptist. Eats weird things. Peter has a bad temper. He curses. He's a loose cannon. Paul uses racial slurs and preaches all night long. Timothy's too young and single. This guy, Jesus, he took a church of 5,000 and dwindled it down to 120. He's no good. Now, we do have one good candidate. Judas. Solid references. Good connections. Knows how to handle money. Has compassion for the poor. I think we're going to hire him. And obviously, there, you guys get the satire here, right? But the point is, God throughout history has used people that weren't prepared. And yet he prepares them. He directs them. And I just wonder about what are the great things that God wants to do in and through your life if you will simply say yes. None of these people were good candidates, but they said yes to God. And he did amazing things through their life. Paul was maybe the worst possible choice for the job. And yet God used him to build his church. He wants to build his church today too. And he wants to use you. Will you say yes? Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have your word, that we can look back and and realize that Man, if you can use that group of people, you can certainly use us. So Father God, I pray that we would simply have willing hearts. Willing hearts to be used by you. Thank you, Father God, for the gifts you've given us. Thank you for the ways you direct us. Help us to listen and to say yes. Amen.